A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. New York City, the Port Authority bus terminal, a very cold night a few weeks ago. Yeah, explain um, what time it is, where we are, what we're doing. It is 11.14 p.m., and we are waiting for a Texas bus. Texas bus with who and inside? So we don't know the number yet, but we have asylum seekers that are there that just come from the border. This is one of the buses that Governor Greg Abbott sent to New York City starting in the summer of last year. You probably heard about this. Hoping to make a point about what Texas is dealing with, he sent migrants on buses to cities run by Democrats. Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, Denver, and New York. Over 27,000 people have arrived at this spot this way, where many of them have been greeted by a five-foot-two black woman named Adama Ba. How many nights a week do you do this? Mm. I don't keep counting anymore. <laughs> but uh, what's the most it gets? Like, and what's, what's a hard week for you? A hard week is every day a bus. I put the kids to sleep, and then I ran over here. I'm a mommy. And, then I, and I'll make it back in time where they won't notice I'm gone. Do they know you left? No. Thing is, Adama doesn't work for the city of New York. She runs a community center for newly arrived immigrants called Africana. She's been doing this work with migrants for 18 years, for a long time just out of her car. Though she still does a lot of work from her car, going around the city to where recent migrants are, talking to them in the car. My car has been my office for years. And it's still my office. And there are there certain things you always are sure that you keep in the car? I have so many stuff. So organizer one-on-one is always have a portable charger, paper and pen. I have toothbrush, toothpaste, peppermint, because I'm always talking to people. I don't think, I don't want to be known as a lady with a bad breath. <laughs> she can help you, but she has a bad breath. I have deodorant, emergency change of clothes because sometimes it's not on purpose, but I spend overnight. Have you had to sleep overnight uh, here waiting for buses? Yeah, I have. My, I have pillow, pillows, I have a blanket. When the very first bus arrived from Texas in August 2022, it was migrant aid groups like Adama's who got advance word that it was coming and greeted the bus, not the city. But soon enough, the city government got on board. Mayor Eric Adams showed up at the Port Authority to greet one of the buses, ready to prove that New York City is a city of immigrants that loves and welcomes immigrants. Uh, I have to provide services for families that are here, and that's what we're going to do. And that's what we, our responsibility uh, as a city, uh, you know, I'm proud that this is a right to shelter state. Right to shelter. That means that New York City had to provide temporary housing to anyone who needs it. And the city took that seriously. They started to show up. They set up operations. And where did the city do its operation? What was it? Inside there in Port Authority. Mm -hmm. Right through those doors here. Right through those doors. On that spot, the city would take people's names and information and then send them on to shelters. Groups like Adama's would hand out food, clothing, toiletries. And as word got out, the New York City would house everyone who showed up. More and more people started arriving. Today, the 27,000 people the Governor Abbott sent are just a tiny portion of the 150,000 who've shown up on buses, trains, cars, and planes since the spring of 2022. New York City was not set up to help this many people this way. The right to shelter was created for homeless men in the Bowery, not for thousands of new arrivals each week. By this fall, it was costing the city $10 million a night, and the mayor completely changed his tune. Yes, New York loves immigrants, but not this many, this vast, needing assistance. 
and the mayor became a kind of one-man unwelcome wagon, flying to Ecuador and Colombia and Mexico to hold press conferences saying, don't come to New York, declaring a state of emergency in the city, begging the federal government for help, which did not arrive. By October of this year, the city had spent over $2 billion and opened over 200 emergency shelters. It had cut the amount of time that immigrants could stay in a shelter from as long as they needed to 60 days for families and 30 days for individuals. And finally, in October, New York went to court to change the law and suspend the right to shelter for the city. Mayor Adams started saying that migrants will be sleeping on the streets. It's not a question of if, but when. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. This is Mayor Adams this fall. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. Or maybe it's not quite that bad. The city's chief fiscal officer, the comptroller, says the mayor is overblowing the effects of the migrants on the city's budget. And one political question in New York is whether the mayor is now scapegoating the migrants to push through budget cuts he'd hoped to do anyway. Though it is true that money's tight. One day, Adama says, city personnel just didn't show up at Port Authority anymore to greet immigrants. They just stopped. They didn't tell us that they were stopping. They, the same day, they just told us they were closing operations. They didn't give us a reason. They didn't give us... They didn't work with us. They didn't give us a heads up. They just shut it down. Which brings us to why Adama's here, where our kids are with her parents at home sleeping. If she weren't here, this bus that's arriving from Texas would drop off a few dozen people in this alley between 41st and 42nd Street. A couple National Guardsmen would sleepily emerge from the car they're sitting in across the street and hand out an address to go to and a map. And they'd have to make their way there, on their own. The address is for the Roosevelt Hotel, which the city has set up as the intake center for migrants arriving in New York. A 20-minute walk from here, right through the center of Times Square. So we're here to welcome them and then actually safely send them there. Adama's organization is partnered with another organization who hired a bus. So what I'm going to do is put them in the bus and send them straight to the Roosevelt and tell them, please give them food right now. And then they will give them uh, sandwiches and water. Yeah. The other thing she's going to do is get on the bus and give them a little speech. The bus driver will translate to Spanish. The speech is partly practical. She gives out a phone number. They type in their cell phones for somebody they can call once they're in a shelter to direct them to the services they need. But also, she's doing this herself, the head of the organization, in the middle of the night, bus after bus, because she thinks it's important that somebody says welcome, just in some basic human way, to people who have come so far, full of worry and fear and hope. So as a former asylum seeker, I didn't get that welcome party. My parents didn't get that welcome party. So I am doing it for them. But the thing you say is just so I understand. So the thing you're going to say is what? Give me the speech. So the first step is Buenvenidos in Nueva York. You are in New York City in Manhattan in Port Authority. We want to welcome you. So we're going to count you and we're going to put you in another bus and transport you to Roosevelt Hotel where there's a bathroom. There's water, there's food, and there's Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi always gets them. She doesn't that her organization can help with clothing and legal aid and anything else they need help with. And then we tell them, listen, this is a country of immigrants. I am an immigrant. I am from Africa. I am from Guinea. 
I'm an immigrant just like you. I made it and you will make it. It's not easy in the beginning, but it will get better. You're welcome here. No matter what anybody tells you, you have rights. Practice those rights. If you don't know what they are, we will tell you what they are. And then we let them know. Okay, time check. What time is it? 11.50. It should be pulling up. You want a peppermint? No? Oh. Here you go. We've been standing in the cold for over an hour. Random people walk up to Adama to start conversations or ask for directions. She just seems like the kind of person you can do that with. At around quarter past midnight, she reveals something that I can't believe I'm learning after standing there so long together. I have my pajamas on. <laughs> what? Um, this is my pajamas. Are you serious? I am. <laughs> oh my God, it's true. Those are checked teal and navy pajamas. I know. And I was like, ah, I don't feel like dressing up. Okay, so, uh, so you're wearing uh, a maroon coat, and teal and navy pajamas, dark blue hijab, backpack. to walk the runway. Exactly. <laughs> Finally, more than an hour after that, 1.30 in the morning, the bus from Texas rolls up. Okay, you cannot go inside, so you just have to wait here. The bus door opens. She climbs the steps, stands at the front of the bus, and makes her speech. But she does his job. When everybody emerges from the bus, after their three-day ride, they are not the exhausted, huddled masses that I expected they'd be. People are beaming, excited. Some carry suitcases. Some carry plastic garbage bags filled with their stuff. In my terrible high school Spanish, I ask where they're from, and families look so happy when they answer. De donde viene? Venezuela. Venezuela. De donde viene? Honduras. Honduras. Colombia. Y de donde? Colombia. Colombia. Venezuela. Venezuela. They tell me they've been traveling for a month and a half, two months, three months. It's a dangerous trip for many of them through the Darien Gap. Most are from Venezuela, a lot of Colombia. Plus one family with the dad proudly shouted his answer like, I don't know about these people, but I definitely belong here. De Mexico, arriba Mexico. That guy has family in New York who were on their way to come pick him up. Most everybody else got into the other bus Adama arranged and headed over to the Migrant Welcome Center at the Roosevelt Hotel, a once glamorous thousand-room behemoth that fills a block of 45th Street, a place where back in the day you might spot JFK or Eisenhower or Guy Lombardo that is now the city's new Ellis Island, the entrance point. Salida, por favor. Adama guides everyone off the bus into the lobby. Hola, entra. Entra, por favor. Familia? How much Spanish do you speak now? None. <laughs> the Welcome Center at the Roosevelt Hotel is one part of the city's response. It's pretty well run. They have legal services to help you apply for asylum. There are free diapers and warm food. They replace your meds. The city started doing this when a kid showed up whose meds for epilepsy had been seized by Border Patrol. And from here, they'll send you to one of the over 200 shelters around the city which are mostly not as nice as this. Some are in school gymnasiums, office buildings. If you have family elsewhere in the country, there's a desk here where New York City will happily buy you a plane ticket to go live with them and not be New York's problem anymore. A fourth of the arrivals take that option. As this year ends, New York City is entering some new phase of this massive experiment at welcoming and providing services for so many new arrivals. It's put some 20,000 kids into schools 
It's housing right now 60,000 migrants. Though in lots of ways, it has not gone so well. It hasn't put newcomers on a path to jobs and places to live. But has any American city ever done this much for new arrivals on this scale? Mayor Adams has pointed out some cities do nothing. Texas, Governor Abbott, does nothing. I was on the border in El Paso. I saw what happened with people and children and families sleeping in, in airports, sleeping on the street. So don't critique what we've done. Don't tell us how we could have done it better. Our hearts are big, but our resources are not endless. The way goes New York, goes America. And if we don't get it right in New York City, we're not going to get it right in America. Today on our show, we look at a city desperately trying to prove that it can be the sanctuary city it thinks it is. We look at the messy, flawed, generous, impossible, vast New York migrant experiment, how it's going, where it works, and where it fails so badly the people have accused New York of deliberately doing horribly so immigrants decide not to stay in the city. What it's like to arrive here and make your way right now in New York. From WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life. Stay with us. Equine, no sleep till Brooklyn. So let's start with what's probably the most difficult thing New York City's faced with these new migrants, figuring out where to house them. It's hard to find appropriate spaces. And some neighborhoods really don't want them. This is Staten Island, living up to every stereotype New Yorkers have about Staten Island when a migrant shelter got put there. There have also been protests in Brooklyn and Queens. With that in mind, the city opened up a new facility a month ago that the mayor said was chosen to be, quote, the least intrusive as possible to current residents, while also being as humane as possible to migrants. It is not in a building. It's four massive tents that together can house 2,000 people at a place called Floyd Bennett Field. One of our producers, Valerie Kipnis, visited right after it opened. When I first heard that Floyd Bennett Field was going to be the city's newest migrant center, it struck me because I knew exactly where it was, in the middle of nowhere. And I can say that with some degree of certainty because I grew up in the same middle of nowhere, or at least close by. It's called Floyd Bennett Field, but to me, it's always been the abandoned airport slash place with the massive ice hockey rink slash random chunk of land you pass just before Rockaway Beach. It's right on the water. There's not a lot of streetlights or ways to get there unless you're in a car or on a bike. And if you're driving around at night, it feels like you're in the middle of the woods, not New York City. I wondered what it was like to get sent there as someone brand new to the city. So I went out with Jika Gonzalez. She's a reporter I've worked with before who covers immigration. We arrived at around dusk. There was the faint glow of cop cars near a massive encampment lit up by fluorescent lights. And there were the tents, surrounded by a giant metal fence and security guards. Jika and I arrived unannounced, hoping to talk to people hanging out around the shelter. But that night was actually so cold that there was basically no one outside, except for this one group of adults with some kids. The kids wore blankets over their heads, trailing on the ground behind them. Cute, but cold, like little ghosts. And actually, they were on their way out, in a rush. Hola, ¿qué tal? 
Why are you leaving here right now? ¿Por qué se están yendo ahorita? ¿Hacia dónde van? Estamos yendo de nuevo a la 45. Trying to go to 45th Street. 45. What's on 45th Street? ¿Qué hay en la 45? El hotel. Un hotel, sí. The Roosevelt Hotel. Back to the Welcome Center. The little girl's name is Carlina, but she goes by Carly. She's eight, has big sister energy, pigtails that some wisps of hair have escaped from. She rocks back and forth from heel to toe as she talks. Her family arrived here only a few hours ago, and now they're leaving because this place isn't what they thought it would be. They said they were going to send us to a hotel, but it wasn't a hotel. It's a campsite, says one of the men, where we're all sleeping on cots and we need our privacy for the kids. You understand? And the bathrooms, they're not in the main tent. You have to go outside to use them. Sometime along the way, they began to wonder about public transportation. How are the kids going to get to school from here? The closest train station is over four miles away. Rafael, Carlina's dad, is like, how will I find work from here? That's why we're looking for shelter, so that way we can start working, earning our own money, like you. That way we can rent a house and take care of our expenses, you understand? They told us we were coming to a hotel, but then suddenly, when we were on the way here, we realized that this is like a desert, an island in the middle of nowhere. The city says it shows people photos of the tents and maps of where they'll be going. But I later talked to other people here, and no one I spoke to had been shown photos. Lots of them were surprised when they arrived. Carlina, her dad Rafael, and the whole family, basically as soon as they arrived, started thinking, we can't stay here. There has to be something else. Rafael seemed determined. He wanted to talk to the person who assigned them here, someone at the Roosevelt Hotel on 45th Street. They needed to get back. This group turns out they're two families from Venezuela, the capital, Caracas. A mom named Daniela, her husband Rafael, also her brother Ronnie and his family, and two other guys who they met along the way. Consider their journey up to this point, the one that got them to these giant tents in the middle of an abandoned airfield. They left Caracas in late summer and for three months made their way through Central America, to Mexico, to Piedras Negras, and then into Texas. After they crossed, they were offered a choice of three buses, Chicago, Denver, or New York. They knew Venezuelans in New York City who said they could get help here, that the kids could go to school, that the adults could find work. So they chose New York. Daniela, Carly's mom, says they were told they'd get a place to live for two months. We could rest and look for work to move forward, you understand. So we decided to come to New York because we'd get help here. But here... It is something else. Here has been confusing. You arrive at the Roosevelt Hotel in the middle of the city with the warm lobby, the breakfast, the bag check, the shelter assignment, the moment of stillness after months of chaos. And then you get put on this bus, and it starts driving you away from the place you've been imagining, away from all the skyscrapers. And suddenly you're in this other place, far away from the crowds of Grand Central. And then you get off the bus, and you're processed in a place that looks very much like a tent because it is a tent. It is something else. So, 
the family had decided to leave and somehow try to make it back to 45th Street. The only way out seemed to be a city bus in a kind of parking lot. The neon sign scrolling across its front read, not in service. There was a man nearby in a Transit Authority uniform with a walkie-talkie who seemed stressed out by the whole situation. I got like 15 people here that want to get on the bus, but none of them speak English. I can't figure out where they want to go. I cannot go off, off route, right? While he's talking, he starts walking towards the parked bus. So the group decides they better follow him. They have almost no belongings, just a few plastic bags of stuff. The kids run ahead. Bye. 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 The kids climb onto the bus, go to the back. Some of them lay down. They look exhausted, sleepy. The adults have no idea what's going on, where the bus is going or anything. They crowd near the entrance of the bus. There's another bus driver already on board. The bus driver with the walkie-talkie gets on as well. Neither of them speak Spanish. It falls to Jika to translate for them. Sir? Sorry, they're just asking me if, where the bus is taking them. It's really unclear what's happening. I later learned that this is a new bus the city set up to shuttle people from the shelter to a subway station. But at this moment, in the first days of the shelter's operation, the driver seems a bit unsure about where he's going. He starts looking through his paperwork. Yes, Coney Island. Coney Island is not near 45th Street in the center of Manhattan. It's in the opposite direction. So he's going to Coney Island by the train. So you're only taking them to the train station? Correct. What if they want to go to the, I think they're trying to go to the Roosevelt Hotel on 45th Street. You can't go off route. That's my instructions. I'm going to translate for them. Is that okay? Ustedes están en una parte de Nueva York que se llama Brooklyn. Y donde ustedes quieren ir es en Manhattan. Son como dos condados diferentes, haz de cuenta. Chica's trying her best to explain to them in Spanish what he means. She's like, you're in a part of New York that is called Brooklyn, and where you're trying to go is Manhattan. It's two different counties. They're called boroughs here. They ask Chica, how are we supposed to transfer or pay for a train? We just got to the city. We have no money. The family keeps asking to go to 45th Street, the same way they got here. And the driver keeps repeating he can't go off route, that he can only take them to Coney Island, nowhere near where they want to go. The bus driver with the walkie-talkie steps out, takes a call, and then comes back. Says maybe he could find someone at the subway station to help the family out. But... It'll be a long trip. A bus ride to Coney Island, then like an hour on the subway back to 42nd Street. They're just skeptical about like if anybody's actually going to help them or not because they feel like they were already not really helped and that nobody speaks Spanish and that it's just very confusing. They'll just drop us off there and go on with their day, Ronnie says. They did that to us already. Walkie-talkie dude goes out again and comes back with a solution. He's found a dispatcher at Coney Island who speaks Spanish. He's going to open the gate, let them in, and direct them to the right train. He's going to speak Spanish to them and show them how to go. He's, he, told, he told me it's easy. It's just the train straight. It's got, okay. just, uh, just one, one train, that's it. He's going to take a train from there. And uh, the dispatcher speaks Spanish, okay. so he's going to get him on. Jika turns and translates. You can see the adults start to relax a little. So maybe it'll work out. It's as if the entire system relies on the kindness of strangers, as if it works by coincidence, 
not design. Coincidence that someone here speaks Spanish to translate. Coincidence that the bus driver is kind and willing to find a Spanish speaker at the next point in their journey. Hopefully, that guy can help them get on the train to 42nd Street. And hopefully at that station, someone can direct them to the hotel. For Ronnie, it all seemed like a very long way to get back to where they had just been. They sent us here to some sort of camp. If they had said that from the beginning, we would not have decided to come. Jika asks, what if this was the only option? Would you stay here? No. Ronnie says no. A city spokesperson told me that you can't choose a shelter. You get one assigned. And if you don't want to stay there, then you're on your own. Chica asks, and if it was this or the streets? We'd figure it out. Maybe walking around will find help. He's saying at what time is the bus leaving here? Right now. Uh, yeah. I already told him. He's looking for you, okay? Thank you. Thank you, sir. And with that, they left. We texted a bit when they got back to the Roosevelt. But then we stopped hearing from them. I think maybe they got a new SIM card. Chica went there a few days later, but couldn't find them. I went back to Floyd Bennett Field to see if I could find them. But no luck. Valerie Kipnis is a producer on our show. She reported this with help from Jika Gonzalez. Act two, 150 days of bummer. So the city's plan for all these new migrants is that they get out of the shelters and find their own places to live, which means making money so they can pay for that place to live. And there's the rub. Most asylum seekers can't work legally when they first arrive, so they have to figure something out. One of our producers, Diane Wu, met somebody in that situation. I met Shokrut outside a city office on a rainy day while he was making a last attempt to get shelter. He was taking a smoke break while he waited for the verdict inside. So much of this whole experience is about waiting. I asked him a kind of throwaway question I was asking everyone. What was your first day in New York like? It's like a uh, surprise. <laughs> like it's, uh, in our country, we say subhanallah. Subhanallah. It's, uh, it's a phrase in Arabic. I looked it up later. It means something like, wow, praise God and this incredible thing he made. It's like a feeling for religion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like a sacred feeling to see? Yeah. Shakrud, that's not his real name, by the way. We're choosing to protect his identity. He's from Mauritania. He's 23. He was a student there, studying bank insurance, which I had to look that up too. Something to do with banks and insurance. Shakrud's first language is Arabic. English is his third. And he started learning it in July of this year. July. That was five months ago. Can you believe that? I studied in my country. Like in school? No, no, in my phone. In your phone? (laughs) He found a YouTube channel and watched it basically nonstop for a week. Then found an app to practice on. 
His teenage sister teased him about it, but that was no way to learn a language. But apparently it was. Chakrut is black, and part of the reason he left Mauritania was to escape racial discrimination there. He arrived in New York in late August and was assigned to a shelter on 31st Street that got shut down in October because of the fire code. The city moved him to a new shelter, which also got shut down a few weeks later, which is how he ended up at this office today, to apply for a new bed. He told me he'd been sleeping on the streets for a couple days, spending the nights in an African restaurant near Penn Station that was open late, and in the tiny mosque in the restaurant's basement. Shakrud finishes his cigarette and goes inside to check if there's a bed for him or not. Comes out with bad news. They just couldn't find any place for us. We have to go. Oh, where are you going to go? Back to the max in the restaurant. Did they give you a reason? Uh, they said it's because it's raining right now and all sh- shelter is full. The shelter or is full. But we can't complain. You know, we can't complain. Okay, well, good luck. I'll, I'm going to text you later, see how it goes. Um, okay, nice to meet you today. Nice to meet you, too. I found Shakrut again a week later, and I was surprised and relieved to hear that, a day or two after we first met, he'd found a place to stay. The friendly owner of a smoke shop near his old shelter heard that Shakrut had been on the street in the cold and said he wanted to help him out. He had an empty space that he rented to Shakrut and two of his friends. Not a real apartment, more like a basement. Two rooms and a bathroom for $1,600 a month, around $500 a person. Their first night in the new place, the three of them had been so excited to finally have their own spot that they stayed up all night talking about how to make it perfect. They decided to get a special tea set from Mauritania. All of this is basically what the city wants for people to find their way out of the shelters and out into the world. But once you do that, there's rent to pay. And Shokrud can't legally work because he's an asylum seeker. And asylum seekers have to wait 150 days after they file for asylum before they can even apply for working permission. This specific waiting period was invented by the federal government in the 90s to discourage people from using asylum claims as a way to get work authorization. What do you think of that system? Yeah, it's uh, like, it's, uh, there is no big deal because they ha- every, con- uh, every country have has stopped to do with his... These rules. Yeah, but like 150 days, it's a long time. Yeah, yeah. The mayor of New York and other mayors have been yelling at the federal government to change this. Like, we cannot help all these people get on their feet if you let them into the country, but then don't let them work for six months. Because Shakrut can't get a job legally, he's had to look for one under the table. He started right when he first got here, in August. He didn't have any connections in New York, so his initial strategy was this. He just got up one day and started walking in and out of stores and restaurants, asking for work, all over the city. I go to the Queens, Brooklyn, some place, I don't know even his name. Maybe the Bronx? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you would walk, you just walk in and what would you say? What would happen? I just go inside the store or the building and say hi, make a conversation like this, say hi, how's it going? And ask him that I'm looking for work, I'm looking for a job. Mm-hmm. 
some people ask what kind of job you like i say uh, i don't have a specific everything like dishwasher stocker cashier everything i can do it some people say no we are not hiring right now some people say to write my name my name and my number and they will call me okay yeah i write my name and my number and go yeah and like how many hours each day would you spend looking for jobs Seven hours, six hours. Yeah. Yeah. Just walking around, going into every shop and being like, I'm looking for work. Yeah. I think seven, seven, six hours a day. He went to so many places that sometimes he'd accidentally go back to the same one without realizing it. They say, uh, you ask us before. <laughs> yeah, I say so. <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. Um, did anybody ever call you back? No, no, nobody. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> there was one golden job that didn't seem to require work permission. But there was another reason Shakrud couldn't do it. I find only one works, but it's for with alcohol. With alcohol. Shakrud had wandered into a bar, thinking it was a restaurant, and they were hiring somebody to help stock the alcohol. But Shakrud's Muslim, and for him it's forbidden to drink or work with alcohol. And he tell me that he needs somebody to be a stacker. And he tried to make me to do this. He said he'll pay 4000 4000 for Four months, yeah. 4000 a month? Yeah. Okay. And what did you say? Yeah, I say it's good salary, but not for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I cannot do this. He say, why, why? I said, because I'm Muslim. He said, yes, there is not big deal there. Because there is a people Muslim drinks. I said, not me. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one job you found, and you couldn't do it? It's only that job I have. I, <laughs> no. I find it, but I couldn't do it. Shakrud ran this grueling and fruitless job hunt for around 20 days, then gave up. It was the worst part of his time in New York, he told me. Worse than having nowhere to sleep. After that, he had a month where he was just kind of adrift. Staying in the shelter, spending his days riding the subway with a friend, getting off at random stops. He also had a brief diversion into dating, which he told me about kind of bashfully and proudly at the same time. He met a woman one day in Washington Square Park. She was an American. What was your first interaction? Yeah, it was like standing and watching people like making dance. And uh-huh. and I say, beautiful, I think yeah, you got a number. That's what you. That's the first thing you said yeah. to her. You're beautiful. Can I get your number? Yeah. <laughs> that worked. Yeah. No, it's not work like this. She said that she's are uh, so old for me because it was it have 28 years. She's, she was 28, yeah. and you're 23. Yeah. Okay. She said I'm so young for her. Uh-huh. Yeah. I said it doesn't matter. He chatted her up for 10 or 15 minutes, and then did get her number. They went on a couple dates. One at the High Line, another park. And talked a bunch. And she asked me about my to tell her about myself, my job, mm-hmm. where did I live? Yeah, and I tell her. He was straight with her. He told her he lived in a shelter, didn't have a job. She laughed and said, "That's funny to looking for girls uh, for relationships and you're living in a shelter." Yeah. She said, "That's funny." <laughs> yeah. What did you say? I said, "I don't care." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and after that, I. Call her, she didn't reply. I, yeah. Uh-huh. I 
I know that's because what I tell her. Shakrud told me he didn't feel sad or care much, just deleted her number. He hasn't tried to date anyone else since then. After that, he asked a guy in the shelter about how to get into doing food delivery, a really common job for new immigrants in New York, where you rent an e-bike or scooter and start making a few bucks per delivery. The tricky thing about it is getting an Uber Eats or DoorDash account, because opening one requires a social security number, which Shakrud doesn't have. But there's a whole shadow market of accounts available. Shakrud met some kind of account dealer outside the TD Bank at 37th Street and Broadway one day. Paid him $150 for an account that was supposed to be active for two weeks. He got kicked off after two days. Later on, a friend helped him find an Uber Eats account. That's what he spends most days doing now, since mid-October. Riding his rented green bike around town. How many deliveries will you? would be a good day? 20. Uh-huh. 23. The best day he'd had, he'd made $150. But the day I talked to him, at 5 p.m., he'd only made 1975 all day, which doesn't get him much closer to making rent. So uh, you have like four months, five months before the work permit comes. What's your plan for the next four months? Uh, I just try to stay in a life. Try to what? Just stay in a life, to stay alive and to still have a place, have like... To be safe. Yeah, that's all. To be safe. When we talked in late November, Shakrud kept bringing up the snow. He's worried about biking once the weather gets bad. That's what's on his mind right now. How to survive the winter. And make it till he can get that work permit. 128 more days. Diane Wu is producer on our show. Coming up, a big dance number solves everybody's problems, just like in the movies. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio. When our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Stand Clear of the Closing Doors, which is the thing that they say on the New York subway. And it also is kind of the mayor's message to any asylum seekers who still want to come to New York today. We have stories today about the unprecedented thing that New York City is trying to house and feed and settle so many immigrants all at once. With the city government picking up the tab, we have arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Lullaby of Broadway. So when we started putting this episode of our show together a few months ago, one thing that we noticed was that so many new immigrants to New York on social media were posting pictures of themselves in Times Square. Like, look, we made it. Sometimes these were after posts where you would see them covered in mud, trudging their way north to the United States. And if you go to Times Square and look around, there, in the middle of the tourists and the families who came in from the suburbs to the Lion King and the costumed Spider-Man and Elmo's, are these newcomers. Yeah, this, this was literally the first spot we came to when we got here. We, got, we, we arrived right here. Did you take a picture? Yeah, of course, we took pictures. Kenny and his son Nestor got here from Venezuela a year ago, he said. Now they were back on the corner of 45th Street on the way into a McDonald's. They come to Times Square every now and then, look at the big screens, hang out. Maybe 50 feet from them, a guy in a gray hoodie with a Colombian team logo on it was with his friends on a bench. They had beers. The guy in the hoodie, Mateo, has been here for a year, he told us. 
That wasn't true for everybody in the group. No, ahorita vine porque un compañero acaba de llegar, entonces vinimos. Uh, we just came here right now because one of my friends just got here. Yeah, yeah, como dos días. He's been here for only two days. Now he's, he moved here to the U.S. Cruzando desde el Dariel, desde el tapón del Dariel. Okay, no, so we've crossed all the way from the Darien Gap to come here. It took four months, he said. I asked if he was going to take a photo here in Times Square, and he said, nah. No tenemos celular porque no lo robaron en México, fuimos secuestrados. We don't have any phones because we actually got kidnapped in Mexico and they, we got robbed. Up on 46th Street, in front of the statue of songwriter George M. Cohan, a Venezuelan couple with five little kids came out to look at the lights and just get everybody out of the house. On 7th Avenue, a 26-year-old sitting on a bench was here for her third time, and she explained the appeal. She likes seeing the huge video screens. They're pretty. No, I just come because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of traffic, a lot of movement. I'm usually alone at home, so I want to, you know, distract myself and just come see something else. You're on the phone right now? I was talking to a friend right now, actually showing her where I'm at, showing her Times Square. Where's your friend? She's in Chile right now. That's where you're from? No, yo soy de Peru. I'm from Peru. She's happy because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm living a dream that I had spoken to her about for a long time, and she's very happy that I'm doing it right now. Mi sueño era conocer New York, y me está yendo super, gracias a Dios. My dream was to get to know New York, come here, and actually, it's going pretty well for me, so I'm actually very happy, thank God. Yeah, this is the country of fashion and, and big screens and all of that. She's been in the U.S. for six months now. She was one of the people I talked to who did not have a difficult or dangerous journey here. She flew to Mexico, walked across the border, got picked up by Border Patrol and requested asylum. Then she flew from Texas to New York City. She's now sharing an apartment in the Bronx with a friend. She's gotten used to the subway, doesn't get lost anymore. She's working at a Burger King, picking up English words and phrases. See you tomorrow, see you later, Bacon, pickle. <laughs> yeah. Leaning on the side of a newsstand maybe a block from her was a kid who I and my interpreter Ramon could not figure out at all. 16 years old, Ecuadorian, had been here for four months, living with his family who seemed to be doing okay, parents working. He said he was going to high school and had a job at a supermarket called Western Beef. But he said he would come to Times Square three times a week, every single week, stay for hours. But for the life of us, Ramon and I could not understand why. When we first walked up, this kid, his name is Junior, was watching some street performers. I'm just watching the show right now, um, seeing how people you know, can showcase their talents. Yeah. So you come a lot, though, every week. So what do you do usually? ¿Y qué hace normalmente cuando viene acá? A ver, a caminar. A veces me quedo aquí viendo para aprender. Just walking around and, you know, watching people do their thing, maybe learn something. Tell me one of your favorite places to go here. Uh, uno de los lugares favoritos aquí para ir. Eh, bueno, uh... This went nowhere. He likes to sit on the red bleachers sometimes on 47th. Do you meet people here and talk to them? No, he doesn't. Is this your favorite place in New York? Not really. Junior, we don't totally understand why you come back so often. Like, we understand you like it, but we don't totally understand why. Say more about that. Why do you come so often? 
Junior, eh, entendemos que viene acá bastante y que se queda acá, pero no, no entendemos muy bien por qué viene tanto o por qué viene bastante, si nos pudiera decir un poco más so, sobre eso. Bueno, lo que le expliqué, por eso. What I had told you before. That's why. And with that, we threw in the towel. Ramon and I walked around to the other side of the newsstand that Junior was leaning on, where there was an 11-year-old street performer with a handwritten sign with his name, Oscar. Ramon noticed that his last name, which was written on the sign, was the same as Junior's, and asked him if he was here alone. ¿Y está aquí solo o con algún familiar o algo? No, I'm here with my brother. Is your brother Junior over there? Sí, Junior. Yeah, yeah. And he comes with you to take care of you? Y viene, él viene como para cuidarlo. Sí, es mi Of course, yeah, he's my brother. When we returned to Junior, he'd been watching us talk to Oscar. He was laughing, I guess, like, yeah, busted. Bueno, es mi hermano ahí. Viene a cantar. Yeah, that's my brother right there singing. I, con razón no lo dijo que escucharon. <laughs> How much money does he make? ¿Cuánta plata él, él hace, más o menos? Por ejemplo, él hace unos 250, 100. I, I, think, I would say he makes around 150 a night. A bad night would be more like 50. The night before this, Saturday night, he did 200. Oscar just loves singing. Ever since he was little, back in Ecuador. Yeah, and I sing. Yeah, it's my passion. Do your friends at school know that you sing in Times Square? ¿Sus amigos en la escuela saben que usted canta acá en Times Square? Yeah, they know. I tell them. And what do they think? ¿Y ellos qué, qué piensan? Uh, no, uh, uh, el lunes me vinieron a visitar. Oh, they came to see me here on Monday. <laughs> This was his friend Marcel who came to see him. He goes to seventh grade with Marcel. Oscar says he would have been in eighth grade in Ecuador, but when he got here to New York City, they put him in seventh. It was kind of a bummer. Anyway, Marcel came with his parents. Oscar says they put $10 in the box. Junior was like, eh, he thought maybe it was more like one or two. Oscar's saving up to buy an accordion. His favorite singer is Mark Anthony. So we asked for a Mark Anthony song. Oscar belts out a song in a shiny new black winter coat that he must have bought him here in America. And watching him, I think about how many singers and musicians and songwriters have walked down this exact seven or eight blocks with the dream of making it here in New York City. He keeps an eye on the crowd as he belts out his song. People drop dollar bills. He really does seem to love singing. But like so many of us who move to this city, at some point, your dream also turns into a job. That is very New York. for the new kids. So there were 20,000 of these new migrant kids enrolled in New York City schools at the start of the school year. And which schools they arrived in was kind of random. That was true last year, too. We, I would say we went from, like, September to December with no students, and then all of a sudden it was junior. It's like, oh, you're getting these students. This is a school counselor at a middle school. He asked that we not name it. The school is about 350 students, so on the small side, and pretty diverse. And one day, uh, this guidance counselor heard that some of the new migrant kids had been crying and hiding in the bathroom. And the counselor doesn't speak Spanish. The kids don't speak English. They had these traumatic experiences coming to the United States, and he couldn't even talk to them about it. He felt like he was failing his students. 
In the end, like so many people on today's show, he just had to kind of jury-rig something himself to deal with the problem. He found a couple of Spanish-speaking grad students who were studying counseling and had them come by, and they did a handful of counseling sessions with the new students. And in these counseling sessions, a kind of surprising thing happened. Some kids, yeah, wanted to talk about their journeys, but that was not the big thing they were interested in discussing. The thing they really wanted to talk about was middle school. They're 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and they're just trying to figure out the same stuff any middle schooler might. So one of our producers, Aviva de Kornfeld, went to this middle school to spend a day talking to kids about what it is like to settle in a New York City middle school. She talked to three of them. The first kid I met was Selenis. She was in an English language class, one of about 20 kids, sitting in neat little rows. Selenis is the tiniest one in class. She sits in the back row with front row posture. She's a total Hermione Granger, very organized, loves knowing the right answer to a teacher's question. She came to the U.S. knowing a little English already. But most of the other migrant students don't speak any English at all, so they're constantly asking Selenis for help in class, which she has mixed feelings about. It's like, Selenis, do this for me. Selenis, help me with that. I help them all with homework because I don't like them just copying my work. I tell them to at least write it differently. And sometimes I just get fed up with helping and tell them to leave me alone. The reason all these kids keep asking Selenis for help is because the school only has eight Spanish-speaking adults to help translate for 45 kids, none of whom speak even conversational English. So lots of kids just sit through class after class without a clue about what's going on. The school does have an ENL class, English as a New Language, though the teacher doesn't speak Spanish. The thing Selenis wanted to talk to me about was her grades. She's stressed about them. Back in Ecuador, Selenis was a top student, best in her class five years in a row. Here, she says, she's doing pretty well, except for in humanities and math. Humanities is hard because there's just so much talking in that class, all in English. It's hard to keep up. And math is difficult because the vocab is all weird. Like, the teacher will start talking about fractions. It's hard to know if the word the teacher is saying, in this case fraction, is a word in English that she just doesn't know yet, or if it's a new word for everyone, even the English speakers. She's worried the teachers don't realize how much harder it is for the migrant kids trying to learn in a foreign language. I talked to a school counselor about this, and he said the teachers definitely do realize that and take that into account. They're planning to grade the kids on a curve, weighing participation much more than they normally do, which sounds like a kindness in the short term, but not a real solution. So much of successfully navigating middle school has nothing to do with what you learn in a classroom. Selenis told me that there are all kinds of things she's having to figure out about being a middle schooler here. Like rules. There are so many more rules here. Selenis, perhaps unsurprisingly, is a fan of rules. 
But figuring out what's considered right and wrong, that's been a bit of a learning curve. Like, the other day, she was playing with her friend, but then got sent to detention for being too rough. Pero en sí no, no nunca nos lastimamos porque siempre jugamos así brusco porque allá estamos como ya entendidos de que es un juego y que es bromeando y nunca nos peleamos por eso. She says that she and her friends always play roughly and so they never get hurt. They understand it's a game. I asked her if her teachers understood that. Sí entienden que están jugando, pero dijeron que de igual manera no lo debíamos de hacer. They understand that we're playing, but said that we still shouldn't play that way. I asked one of the Spanish-speaking teachers who knows Selenis well about this incident. She said the principal showed her the security footage of the girls, and it was clear to her that they were playing, though she could see why it would look alarming to the principal. I asked Selenis if she often found herself breaking rules simply because she didn't understand them. And she said, well, sometimes she understands the rules fine, but just wants to play like she used to. The second girl I talked to was Sofia. And by that I mean she talked to me. She was very set on talking to me because she had a lot to say all at once. Like how she likes science class because her teacher has a lizard. And how she wants to be an actress or maybe a veterinarian. And how her favorite word to say in English is water. She likes how it sounds. I think school's going okay for her. It was a little hard to tell. She pinballed from subject to subject. Everything just seemed to fall under the category of things I'd like to share, even how hard it was to come to the U.S. from Ecuador. Sofia and her family didn't eat for two days. In the same breath, she'll tell me about how scared she was that her family might get robbed, and also how cool it is that New York City looks just like it did in the movie King Kong. Other kids did this too. It was this very weird dissonance talking to them, because they're so excited to tell you about themselves, but they've also lived through real hardship. So they're clamoring over one another, all simultaneously trying to tell me about kind of devastating experiences in these chirpy little voices. They just want to share, whatever it is, heavy or light, like it all has equal weight. The last girl I talked to was named Mariani. I wanted to meet her because a teacher mentioned she was putting together a dance for all the girls. Mariani's gawky, carries herself like a baby giraffe, except for when she's dancing, which she's often doing. She tells me that after school, she likes to listen to music and dance while she cleans her room. And recently, one afternoon, she had an idea. I was dancing, and I was like, I want everyone to see my dance. She decided to choreograph something for the girls to perform during the winter dance. It seemed like a good bonding opportunity. She'd come up with the idea shortly after a spat over some candy with some other girls. The kids often argue about food. Just the other day, the librarian had to intervene in an altercation involving a cup of noodles. Mariani wanted to do something about all the fighting, so she came up with a solution straight out of Disney Channel. Let's make a dance to bring everyone together. She invited the rest of the girls to participate. Nearly 20 of them wanted in, which is a big deal for Mariani, 
because she used to hate school back in Venezuela, got bullied terribly. But here, in some ways, she finds it's easier to make friends because all the migrant kids are stuck together. Today is the first rehearsal. We all head downstairs where Mariani is going to teach everyone the dance. The room is a real dance studio with mirrors and a ballet bar. Hola, vamos a bailar. Everyone's in their socks, and Mariani gets right to it, walking them through the steps. Así no, the dance is exactly what you'd imagine a middle school girl might choreograph in her bedroom. It was nice to see the kids in this setting, where there was room for all their personalities. Sophia is running around, bouncing off the walls. Selenis, the little Hermione Granger, wanted to know the exact count of all the moves. And since she had gone to a ballet academy back in Ecuador and has some experience with performing, insisted on making this announcement. If, during the performance, the music stops for some reason, just keep dancing. Good advice. If a little premature, they've barely learned the choreography. Mariani, for her part, honestly just seemed happy to be included, even though this whole thing was her idea in the first place. There were some disagreements about how to do the dance. But mostly, things went fine. And during breaks, the girls rolled around on the floor, did cartwheels, precariously hung off the ballet bar. A few played a high-speed game of Ring Around the Rosie. One of the older girls helped a few of the younger ones practice the steps. It was total chaos. The good kind. But hanging over all of this is the fact that for a lot of migrant families in New York City, there's a deadline approaching. The city recently told families that they only have shelter for 60 days. Then they'll have to reapply. Some as soon as the first week of January. A new shelter could mean a new school entirely. Whatever solidness the girls feel now might be gone by the new year. Viva de Kornfeld is a producer on our show. Act 5, Harlem Shuffle. So once migrants get into the shelters that New York is providing, lots of them have no idea what they're supposed to do next or who to talk to. In theory, they all have case managers, but often they have no idea who those case managers are. And the case managers are overwhelmed anyway with lots of cases. So there are all kinds of nonprofits trying to fill the gaps, one of them is run by Adama Ba, the woman I was with till 2 in the morning at the Port Authority, greeting a bus from Texas. Again, her group is called Africana. Emmanuel Jochi dropped by there to see how much of the city's slack they're able to take up and where they're struggling. Here he is. Africana is in a nondescript building in Harlem at 145th and Lenox. Most of the windows are boarded up. There's no signage. The only reason I knew I was in the right place was because when I pulled up at 10 a.m., there was a long line of people that trailed out the front door, round the building, and into a parking lot. Inside, there's a small waiting area, a long table with three people doing intake, a series of makeshift cubicles. It looks basically like a tiny, chaotic DMV. The sort of place where, if you stand around for too long, someone will pull you into a random task that they need help with could be translating, copying papers, or in my case, holding someone's toddler for a second. Hi. 
You won't do my job for me. Overseeing everything is Adama Bar. She started this place seven months ago, after years of helping immigrants and asylum seekers out of her car. So many people needed her services, she needed an office. Now, she says, they get roughly 500 people a day. We don't advertise this location because of the value that we get. So how do people know, sort of, like, to, to come here? Word of mouth. Purely. Word of mouth. She founded this place to serve a new generation of migrants from places like Guinea and Mauritania, who've been making their way to the United States in the last couple of years. Most people started coming in large numbers this summer, in part because of the Nicaraguan government's decision to change their visa system. So Africans could just fly to Nicaragua and from there walk and hitchhike to the United States. You no longer had to pass through the often lethal Darien Gap, connecting Colombia and Panama. Word spread on social media about it, and lots of people came. If you notice when you looked around the room, it's mostly black migrants, right? And it's the one place where they get people that look like them that are giving them direct services. Everywhere we go, we're turned away. There's no one who's going above and beyond to translate if they don't speak the language. But everyone here speaks that language. Languages like Pilar and Wolof, but also Arabic and French. And everybody providing those services is a volunteer, including Adama. She's not getting paid for any of this. To make money, she has a part-time job. And it seems like she's just about making all of this work. Which is wild, because most of the time I was at Africana, I found myself thinking, what would happen if this place didn't exist? I watched person after person come in to inquire about an important piece of mail they had forwarded to Africana. Because with all of the moving they were doing from shelter to shelter, this was their permanent mailing address. I met a woman who'd had a baby just a week earlier who was limping around the office, stitches and all, because she just wanted to be around other people from her country. And in the middle of this, I saw Adama digging through crates looking for mail, calming disputes. She seemed unable to get through a quick Zoom call at her desk without someone who'd been helped days earlier, popping by to give her an update or needing more guidance. I watched her constantly, and I mean constantly, lose track of her phone because she'd given it to volunteers who'd learned long ago that if you need something from a shelter manager or an attorney or anyone useful, it'll happen just that much faster if they think Adama Bar is calling. Trying to keep up with her, I kept looking for discreet ways to tell her that I could really use a minute to catch my breath. But there are no breaks, she says. Not when she's helping all of these people. I have a random question for you, which is a simple one. When do you, like, when do you eat? I'm eating now. I have a peppermint. (laughs) Because they're not eating. So I'm so embarrassed to eat in front of them. So I'd rather chew gum in a peppermint. You wait until you get home? Fortunately, yeah. I'm surprised I'm not skinny. (laughs) Follow me. Next spot. Artemis' biggest challenge today is 27 young men age 18 through 21, here in the U.S. without their parents. Today, Adama wants to find them more housing. And she's trying to get them into what she says is the gold standard here. Instead of regular migrant shelters, she wants to get them placed in the city's youth shelter system. That system serves all young New Yorkers aged 16 through 21 without homes, not just migrants. And in the youth shelter system, you could potentially get a spot for up to two years, not just 30 days. 
you also get vocational training, mental health services, and help finding schools, which are all services these kids would rarely get in the regular migrant shelters. It's going to be hard for Adama to place all 27 boys, though, because a lot of the youth shelters are full. Most of the boys know that they could be in for a bit of a wait, so they spread out around the room, lounging. Almost everyone is on their phones, watching soccer and talking to people back home. One guy, though, who isn't on his phone is a 19-year-old named Lamine. He's the one person who asked me, straight up, who are you exactly? Do you work with immigration? I speak French because I lived in Belgium for a few years as a kid. Never picked up the word for podcast, though. And as I struggle to remember if I can just say podcast, I can feel the mean sizing me up, wondering if I can be helpful to him in any way. He figures out quickly that I probably can't, but he's still happy to talk with me. He explains that he's from Guinea, says both of his parents are dead. And a couple of years ago, after a coup d'etat in his country, the one parental figure in his life, a military officer who'd more or less adopted him, went missing. It shocked me. I don't know if he was just in prison or if he's dead. I don't know. I don't know. All of it pushed me to leave the country because back there, my life wasn't guaranteed. Luckily, Lamine says, he knew someone who knew someone who could help get him out. Which, I should add, always seems to be a thing for Lamine. He just has this knack for seeking out the right people for help. And there's an earnestness about him, I think, that wins them over. That's how he found his first shelter in New York, from a random stranger on the street. And it's how he heard about Africana. Lamine showed me his Facebook page. There's this video of him at the airport in Texas. It's kind of his I've made it to America video. He looks sheepish, almost embarrassed in it. But he is so incredibly happy. He looks legitimately really young. Younger somehow than Lamine in front of me. What a difference three weeks makes. Now that he's in New York, he doesn't really talk to people back home. And he feels guilty about that. I got rid of my African number on WhatsApp. I got an American number so I could forget. Lamine doesn't want to think about his life in Guinea. But he doesn't want to talk about New York either. I think people will ask me how they can get here. They'll think they can change their lives, that everything will change, but it's the opposite. I can't, I can't tell someone in my country to come here if you're not in big danger. If you're in danger, okay, because here in the U.S. there is security, but here being undocumented is not easy. It's not easy. Right now, he's in a shelter, a big tent facility on Randall's Island next to Manhattan. But in just two weeks, he'll run up against the city's 30-day limit. That's actually why he's here at Africana. He's trying to figure out where to go next. As the day goes on, the 27 young men are getting restless. So far, Adama has only managed to find places for just two of these guys, 
at a shelter called Covenant House. She says it's one of the best in the city. It's not until 7.30, almost 10 hours after I arrived at Africana, that one of the volunteers who's been helping out Adama all day hears back from a place she's been waiting on. This organization will take kids, but she tells the boys, there's a catch. Only 16 people can go, she says. She reads out 16 names. And Amin is not on that list. He looks upset. He's going to have to come back in the morning and try all of this all over again. I tell him I'll catch up with him later, and I follow the 16 kids out the door. Those young men have one last task sitting between them and this day finally being over. They have to make a roughly 30-minute walk to where they'll be staying. All right, let's go. I start walking with them, only to realize that we have a couple of stragglers. They are coming. Hey, 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 we leave. And then it dawns on me. Me and these youth were both given the address, but I'm the one with Google Maps pulled up. I'm not following these youth to their next living situation. I'm taking them there. It's a little chaotic. A few of them charge ahead, moving like they know where they're going, even though they don't, and acting kind of insultingly like they're not with me. I watch one of them try to jaywalk and almost go headfirst into oncoming traffic. Amazingly, we get to our destination in one piece and on time. I ring the doorbell of the place, and one of the teenagers, the same one I yanked back from traffic earlier, taps me on the shoulder and asks me, you're going to wait with us, right? See how it is? I won't leave you guys. I got you. I got you. And then a woman opens the door and welcomes us. Hi. I'm just a journalist who walked with them over from the thing. She has some important information to share with everyone, but she doesn't speak French, so I translate. I'm going to welcome them for five days. Monday morning, they go back to Africana. Five days. That's it. I feel terrible communicating this to the boys. This is not going to be their new home. And every day, they have to clear out of here from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. One of the boys mouths to me, Sefou, it's crazy. I don't know what to tell him. I kind of agree. I thought that when I went to Africana, I'd be taking a look at a sort of safety net under the city's safety net. A place that was catching all these people the city maybe wasn't. But that safety net has holes in it. For all the work Adama and her volunteers put in, it feels like it all comes down to luck. In the weeks that followed, I got texts and calls from a couple of the boys. They told me that they hadn't gotten placed in a long-term youth facility. But instead, they'd doubled down on staying in the city's regular migrant shelters. Adama told me it used to be easier to place young people. I happened to be there in late October, right when it started to become almost impossible. The youth shelter system's full. For weeks, I didn't hear anything from Lamine. But when I did get in touch with him, he told me he's staying at Covenant House, the big youth shelter Adama says is one of the best. He says he got the address of someone he met that day at Africana, and he took it from there. I got in here myself, he told me. 
Chaque matin à 6 heures, je me réveille pour venir à Covenant Homes. Every day at 6 a.m., I got up to go to Covenant House to ask if they have a place. They told me there is no place, so I came back. The next day, they said they still didn't have a place, but that maybe if I came back there, it might be a spot. So I kept going day after day, and then they told me they had a spot. I did it. Not with the help of Africana. I did it alone, just me. You can hear it, right? The pride in his voice. And he should be proud. He didn't get into one of Covenant House's two-year programs, but they did give him a spot for 60 days. He's going to school, learning English slowly. He's still sussing out how I can be useful, I think. Lately, when we've talked, he's had a few questions for me about my own immigration story. How I came here. Adama told me she has a lot of Lamines, people who figure it out on their own. That was her goal when she first opened Africana. She'd help folks and they'd be gone because she'd have connected them to the right people. But she's serving hundreds of people a day because so many of them end up returning and so many more keep arriving. The night I came home from Africana after 10 hours with her, I'd been in bed about an hour when I got a call from Adama. There were buses on the way that she was meeting that night. Starting the whole thing all over again. Manuel Jochi produced today's episode of our show. Together today's show include Bim Adewumni, Chris Benderev, James Bennett II, Fia Benin, Jindai, Ban, Sean Cole, Michael Kamate, Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Hannah Jaffe Wald, Tobin Lowe, Mickey Meek, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, Lily Sullivan, Francis Swanson, Christopher Swatala, Marisa Robertson Texter, Matt Tierney, and Julie Whitaker. Our managing editors, Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editors, David Kestenbaum. Our executive editors, Emmanuel Berry. We had editing help today from Gwyn Hogan. We first heard about Adama Ba and Africana from a Chalkbeat article by Eliana Puroso. We had many interpreters today. Wall of Interpretation by Aram Ngam. Pular in French by Abu Ja. Charlotte Morley also did French. Arabic, Hani Hawasli, who also helped us with fact-checking. Spanish Interpretation by David Mora, who also helped with field producing. Andrew Belisle, Joanne DeLuna. And my interpreter in Times Square, Ramon Mendez. Voiceovers in English in Act 5 from Karim Diane. Special thanks today to Jamie Pulovich, Michelle Navarro, Jasmine Garst, Jordan Salama, Bahar Ostadon, Cody Ray Canoe, Camille Mackler, Rachel Lissy, Kirsten Brendlin, Kate Smart, Gabriela Munoz de Zuberia, Natalia Vajejo Joha, Eric Chen, and Dana Balud. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. We can stream our archive of over 800 episodes for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks as always to our program's co founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. He was horrified to learn that The New Yorker is coming out with a 1,000-page holiday edition of the magazine. Imagine 
Imagine the collective weight on the front stoop. This issue will destroy New York City. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.